0: Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com.
1: Hello, you tune into the Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. As usual, my name is Kingsley Kippuri and I'll be with you for the next hour. I'm joined by my comrade, my partner in crime, Greg Nicholson. How are you doing today?
2: I'm well, thank you. Thanks for having me once again.
1: I'm good. I like how you always thank me for having you on. <laughs> Even like, though I'm here every week. You were raised so well, man. I think you just you just come from a good home. Man.
2: I just have to be grateful every time I appear on the show because I know it could end soon. <laughs> dude, I just say t- one dumb thing and I'm It's a here. tough
1: economy, man. You know, anything, anything could happen. Dude. That's
2: right, actually. That is not the topic of today's show. But on it. the
1: bright side, you could just be like, it's B.E. that made you lose your job.
2: If, if, if I get fired. Okay. Yeah. Just, yeah. That's, just, I'm going to, I'm going to revert straight to that. Everybody else does. So just, why not? Just, keep,
1: just keep it in your back pocket. <laughs> um, yeah. I want to, yeah, I feel like there's more there. I feel like I'm, I'm lagging on the jokes lately. I need to polish up.
2: If, if you have any jokes for Kingsley for next week, just tweet him at Mzanzi Masai.
1: There we go. On the topic of Twitter, please, please, please tweet us on at dm shows that It's always wonderful engaging with you and seeing the Twitter account continue to grow. It's, it's, you know, in the era of social media, my self-esteem is very closely tied to our follower account. Remember, you can also call us on at I mean on 0861-555-189. Always, always wonderful hearing from you. We're gonna jump right in on something that was really making headlines over the weekend. Um, and that was the the issue of of what's going on in in Swane. So this is a key uh, metropolitan municipality that that in the in the run up to the local elections, a lot of people have been watching, um, and the conversation had been whether the ANC can retain this, and and whether them losing it would be a sign of of a weakening party. And then suddenly we started seeing. A lot of violence. Uh one person was shot over the weekend and, and, and killed. So it was a fatal injury. And we saw burning of property, burning of buses. I think twenty buses from one company were burnt over the weekend. Um so it seemed like a situation that that's been escalating. Um the reports coming out of there is that it's it's linked to the ANC party list process and the and the question of who's gonna be put forward as the candidate mayor. Um, Greg, I know you wrote on this, it's something you've been following pretty closely. Could you just give us some context on what's going on?
2: So I think I think the the sort of starting point to, to note is that the Tswane ANC is extremely divided by factions. Um, a lot of people have noted over the years that there's a, or this is what people sort of suggest. And this is one of the problems with this issue is there's a faction sort of linked to the, to the current executive mayor, Sputla Ramachopa, and another one linked to, to his uh, deputy in the Tswana ANC, uh, Mapiti Matsena. And going into these, um, with the candidate lists and, and the proposals for, for the mayor, mayoral lists from the Tswane region, um, the current mayor, Sputla, was not named in, in one of those, uh, proposals in sort of lists of the three candidates that the region gave to the A and the Houteng ANC. But Mapiti Matsena was. Now, when when these three names suggested by the Twana Region who they wanted to be mayor went to the to the Gauteng ANC PEC, um the ANC PEC rejected them or they they said they weren't um happy with any of those options. And but they nevertheless took the names to the to the ANC committee that was looking at the the special NEC meeting that was looking at choosing the mayors mm. and the that meeting of, of ANC leaders agreed that none of these three names would essentially um be viable to put forward as to be the next mayor of Twine. and so effectively what they did is they then decided. And I think um Deputy Secretary General Jessie Duarte yesterday mm. was quite diplomatic, but she still um, acknowledged that those three names and choosing some uh, between the different candidates for mayor from from these different Swane factions. Would essentially lead to further disunity mm. and, mm. and considering the, over this year, there have been a number of protests in, in, and there have been in, in the Tuane region over ANC, um, disagreements over candidates and also over, over all sorts of little disagreements. It also always sort of pops up in the news here and yeah. there that, you know, an ANC meeting was stormed by angry members mm. or, or some officials have been, have been attacked. Um, I think considering that, that the, the sort of history of, um, protest disgruntlement and even violence what what i think the, the ANC leaders were saying was that if if any of these local candidates were chosen it just would have led to worse worse violence and so essentially they you know, what some people say parachuted in a candidate, but what they did is they, they chose the, the ANC MP and also former minister, um, a very, very accomplished politician, uh, Toko Dediza, um, should be, if, if the ANC wins, should be leaving the National Assembly and going to serve as, as mayor in Tswane. And obviously the news since then, um, on, as soon as it was being discussed on Sunday night, someone was shot out, outside the area, um, where, where this was being discussed, shot and killed. And then obviously everybody knows that in particularly in Mamelodi in and Attridgeville, um, people have been violently protesting. Mm. They've shut down the communities. Mm. They've burned buses, looted stores in the last couple of days since this has been announced. So I think the question everybody asking is asking themselves now is, was it the right decision to choose someone outside of these lists suggested by the Tuane region or or despite the violence, could it have been worse if they had have chosen someone from one of these local factions?
1: I mean, I hear you. I mean, it sounds, when you look at it sort of in theory and in sort of distance from the situation, it sounds like it makes sense, right? You've got two factions. It sounds like it's just sort of infighting and it's saying, okay, we don't want to be a part of the faction. And we don't want to succumb to this violence. We're going to pick a neutral person. And a very qualified <laughs> in person. In theory, a neutral, very qualified senior person that we can all agree on. So in theory, you're sitting there, you're like, yeah, this makes
2: sense. In, in, also in theory, the, <laughs> one of the outcomes is that no one in the region is happy. So everybody gets angry. <laughs> Everybody's rather pissed off, rather than you. pissing off one faction, both could I mean, be pissed off now. Like, but I think yeah. there are a lot of details that yeah. still have to come out about these protests. I think at the moment, the, seems like the reporters on the ground, um, I've been number one, focusing on the violence. Number mm. two, have faced threats of intimidation, and yep. it seems sort of difficult to really put their finger on on just who and what is behind this.
1: I mean, I hear you. I mean, I, th- I think there's a sort of other questions around. One is how much, how much, what's the word responsibility, at the ANC will take for for being for for being sort of at the centre of of the of the violence. Will they say, Hey, we made a bad call and that's why this happened? Or will they do what we've seen sometimes, um, not only in Swan, in different provinces, this these accusations about other people. Um, and outside forces being behind some of the looting. Um,
2: I think that their first strategy yeah. is to get, to get the leaders of the Tswana region to unite behind Toko Dediza. Yeah. And they're sort of, they're doing that at the moment. Um, to hopefully quell, uh, if they have angry supporters, to quell their unrest. I think they're going to be, they're going to stick to their guns with, with the candidate, but we'll see how bad things get in Tswana. If things get a lot worse, they might have to, to reconsider their position. I think also one of the questions that two things I think we have to ask of the ANC mm. is, what did they do perhaps did they do enough um as as this factionalism and disunity was festering over the years? Did they do enough to sort of quell that, or perhaps did they even inflame the the issue of factionalism in the in the region and second, did they consult enough for For a long enough people, and for a long enough time about putting forward the Toko as the mayoral candidate, because it was on Saturday night when they released um all of the their mayoral candidates' names except for Tswane on Sunday they met the Tswane the region and took forward this name of Toko and then obviously it was just even outside that meeting someone got shot and killed, so perhaps perhaps would it have been beneficial to actually Going to longer discussions with the region um rather than jump into this uh potentially prematurely
1: I mean I hear I mean, like you said, the situation is still unfolding, so we're really just getting news really by the minute um, so people following twitter, I suppose not s a v c for your news source but people following twitter and and eyewitness news and so on there's there's literally just by the minute updates on that. If you're just tuning in, it's the daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. Um, just after 1 p.m., we're just discussing briefly the issue of Tswane and the, and the municipal elections coming up, and what and what's going on. Um, we continue to see violence. Is this is this really just a a, a symptom of a vibrant democracy? Um, I suppose we'll find out. Next, um, we want to talk about something called the Enough Project. So the enough project is basically, uh, an initiative to return stolen assets from Africa. And this in particular is on South Sudan of saying, listen, we, we constantly hear about, about sort of, about dictators and, and sort of single party leaders and, and presidents for life in different countries. And they, and they loot their countries, right? So they run the treasury like it's their personal sort of bank account. And and a lot of that money goes offshore and it's taken to America, to Europe and just different places with the idea that even if they are out of power, They've pretty much got a sort of a bank account for life and making sure that the, the, they retain that personal wealth should anybody else take take over. On this issue of this ENOUGH project, we'll be talking to Brian Adeba. Brian, can you hear us?
3: Yes, I can. There we go. Hi,
1: Brian, I've given a very, very rough description of the ENOUGH project. We'd like to hear from you directly. Could you give us some detail on what the ENOUGH project is and how it came about?
3: Yeah, the Enough project basically um you you've captured the definition quite well in general terms it's basically to you know work against uh impunity and to thwart uh, dictatorships and uh um ensure that uh you know um there's accountability uh for leaders who commit at- mass atrocities.
2: Now, Brian, today we're going to be speaking particularly about South Sudan, and while President uh, Salvi Kiir uh, has called for the recovery of stolen assets invested in foreign accounts and properties, one of the things I'm interested in is, first of all, the position in South Sudan. I think it's the ENOUGH project that has written that grand corruption and extreme violence are not aberrations, they are the system. Can you tell us what, mm-hmm. what, what has happened, What how does how has this situation manifested itself in South Sudan where extreme corruption linked to violence has become the norm?
3: Well, in, in, in South Sudan, what's, what's happened is the, the system that the SPLM, the Sudan People's Liberation Army created, um, basically hijacked all institutions of governance and, uh, ensured that these institutions were working for the, uh, for a small clique of, uh, you know, of the political elite. So in essence, um, uh, accountability measures was timed and um, uh, institutions like the Anti-Corruption Commission uh, only exist in name. The National Audit Chamber uh, can issue reports about gross misappropriation of uh, public funds, but uh, no action is taken, and uh, the same officials who have been uh, pointed or fingered for uh, mass appropriation of um, of public funds get recycled in the system that come to to power they, they, when there's a reshuffle in the government you see them as ministers and so forth and so forth. This is how it manifests itself uh, in in south Sudan so um, literally all um, agencies in south Sudan all government agencies are working for a small minority a clique in government and the, and there's no accountability. Um, and that's that's a, a, as a result, uh, the, the the public monies in South Sudan have just disappeared into thin air, looted, uh, transferred abroad, invested in assets, and stored abroad. Basically, that's what's happening.
2: Are there any estimates of of the billions, millions, or billions that might be invested abroad, and and where where this money goes? Did you know what actually happens to it?
3: Well we We do have a figure the president himself uh, said in two thousand and twelve that uh an estimated four billion dollars has disappeared you know stolen by about seventy five um, high level government officials. Um, he did not, however mention any names publicly. he just said there's been money that's been stolen, and this is the amount four billion dollars and seventy five government officials high level government officials. Are responsible for this theft, but he doesn't mention their name. So when 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 you accuse someone of a crime, the next thing that people want to see is um, an, a name attached to that crime, so that you know there's accountability. So in, in essence, you know, mentioning uh, uh, without without mentioning the names, the president basically is cutting the responsibility of accountability. Where is this money uh, st- uh, st- uh, stored? Uh, mostly, it's um, it's 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 stored abroad, uh, in neighboring countries. Kenya is one good example where there's a lot of South Sudanese money stored in um, in, in the banking system. Um, there's also property invested in Kenya, um, as well as in Uganda. Um, some of this money has also found itself to um, places like the United States, Australia, and the UK.
2: Now it seems the president might be. Conflicted, because I'd imagine that under his administration, this is where all, all of this sort of stuff happened. Is do you have faith that the president can take action, and and, and what must he do?
3: Well, the, the um, right now there is very little faith in the president uh, in the in the government's ability to counter um, corruption in the country. Uh, right now, what must he do? Uh, what must the country do? It's very, very clear, and it's been spelled out in the um, uh, peace agreement that was signed in August 2015. Basically, uh, empower all the government governance institutions uh, so that they effectively carry out their mandate. For instance, take the Anti-Corruption Commission. Right now, there are two pieces of legislation that govern its activities. One is the... Um, is enshrined in the constitution, and the other in the act itself that operationalizes the um, the, the, the the anti-corruption commission. Now, the constitution says that uh, the anti-corruption commission is empowered to prosecute um, culpable individuals. The act that governs the uh, commission's uh, activities does not give that power. So there's this discrepancy. They are uh, they so the the uh, the Capacity to uh, investigate and prosecute corruption by the Anti-Corruption Commission is rendered ineffective. Uh, The National Audit Chamber issues various statements um, about misappropriation of uh, public funds, Um, yet uh, no action is taken to hold individuals accountable. So the very first thing that the president and his cabinet and the new government that has been formed needs to do is empower all uh, institutions of governance to effectively carry out their mandate and stymie the massive corruption that is afflicting the country at the moment.
2: And surely, international actors also have a role to play. And 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 this isn't the first instance we've seen of of countries trying to claim back um what's been what's been sort of looted and stolen and deposited in offshore accounts and invest in offshore properties. Um, we saw in Nigeria the president there recently recently also making such claims. What what must the sort of international different different states uh, and, and nations do and, and the international sort of um, global bodies?
3: Well, they must realize that um, the conflict in, in South Sudan is primarily, um, you know, a contest over the spoils of state because there are no institutions that hold the political elite accountable so corruption is the at the root cause of conflict in south sudan in order to um to prevent uh, uh, another conflict in south sudan the, the the international community must support efforts um to hold the leaders of south sudan accountable and that is um you know facilitating uh, punitive actions like you know um um you know uh, targeted sanctions at individuals, um, efforts to you know enacting efforts to you know trace and seize um, illicit um, assets that are stored in these countries, uh, and basically support the, um, the the presence of strong and viable viable institutions of governance in South Sudan and uh, and empower civil society to to be active in in the fight against corruption.
2: Uh, a cynical view might suggest that. International actors would have little uh, motivation to do such because maybe perhaps dirt would be turned up on on their governments and their corporations
3: uh, uh, yes that that is true and 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 it, it requires uh, you know um, political courage to look beyond this um, you know, um, to 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 uh, to say that you know uh, we we have a responsibility as as uh, as humanity to to prevent uh, you know the kind of mass atrocities that have happened in Sudan uh, in South Sudan and elsewhere, and so to you know and 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 you know uh, reach out and and, and uh, ensure that uh, help is rendered uh, when possible.
2: Now Brian, before we let you go, South Sudan is obviously a very young nation, it has a lot of uh, developing to do. What effect is this corruption having on, on your average citizen?
3: Well, the standard of living has deteriorated uh, considerably. Right now, as we speak, um, you know, because of this corruption, the um, the the, uh, the corruption, of course, precipitated conflict and the, the conflict itself um, damaged the economy. And right now, as we speak, uh, the inflation rate is the highest of any place on Earth today. It's 295 percent. And the IMF projects that by, uh, you know, throughout this year, it may reach 300 percent. So that's that's uh, you know the cost of living has become three times more difficult for South Sudanese um, individuals. Um, this corruption uh, has ensured that there's no delivery of services at all. You know, in South Sudan, a country the length and breadth of France, there's only um, uh, you know, less than fifty or uh, you know less than uh, a, a thousand kilometers of Tamak road. And Juba itself is the the only city in South Sudan that has. Um, you know, uh, paved roads uh, There's no delivery in, in health services Right now, to be a woman in South Sudan A pregnant woman Is the most dangerous um, um, aspect That can happen to anybody um, there's no electricity. Uh, prices of uh, basic uh, goods in the market have skyrocketed. There's no fuel. There are long lineups. I was in, in Juba in April. There are long lineups for, for fuel. And this is an a, an oil producing country. So the, the situation is really dire and something needs to be done at the moment to, to pull South Sudan out of the morass that it is right now. And it is incumbent upon the political uh, structure that is in existence at the moment to take uh, the courage required to reform institutions, um, um, you know, uh, ensure accountability, and uh, and empower people, um, you know, to 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 look out for corrupt practices and report them, and uh, and basically try to perhaps um, steer South Sudan on the correct path that it should have taken uh,
1: before this corruption just ran out of control. Absolutely, Brian can't put any better than that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, perfect. If you're just tuning in, that's Brian Adeba from what's called the Enough Project. And that's really just a project to recover, especially South Sudan's stolen uh, public funding that's been taken offshore. And I really hope that could start a sort of a wave or a trend across the continent of saying, wait a second. Uh, We've had these previous sort of presidents and military dictators and a lot of our public funding has been stolen and taken offshore. what happens now? Next, we're just going to switch gears, um, and talk about something that actually happened yesterday, which is World Refugee Day. So 20th June is sort of Global World Refugee Day. And there's a day where we sort of take a second and say, wait a second, we have more than 60 million people around the world who are displaced for various reasons. And that's, 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 that's a, that's a sort of ridiculously sort of unfathomable, unfathomable figure when I think of 60 million people. So it's, it's sort of shedding a spotlight on them and saying sort of what's going on. The most marginalized people in the world, really, and saying, why is this happening, and what can we do about it? We're going to zoom in on on Doctors Without Borders, uh, MSF, and and they re- recently released a communication that where they were going to reject funding from EU member states because of what they term as the EU's shameful migrant policy. So we want to zoom in on the on the sort of European migrant situation, and for this we'll be talking to Jens Pedersen, the humanitarian advisor. Jens, can you hear us? I'm um, sorry. We'll just work to get to sort of get get him back on the line. I'm um, we'll just ask our producers to figure out what's going on. Um, so just to, to zoom in on this, Greg, I know you I know you touched on this briefly, and you actually went to Germany um, to actually to get details on what on what European different states are doing about the migrant situation in the wave of sort of northern Eastern African migrants going over and crossing sort of treacherous waters, people as a result of ISIS going towards Europe, and it's just there seems to be a lot of sort of <clears throat> Uh, no, not seems to be a lot. There seem to be a change. I'd, I'd like to say so. I, I, I dare say that at the start there was a bit of a more open approach of saying these are people, uh, and 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 they deserve a right to sort of. To safe landing and in a place to be, and that seems to be that seems to be changing slightly yeah. as, as sort of more and more people cross these oceans. It seems to be a feeling of like, wait, this is a bit too much for us now.
2: And I think that's for two reasons. So initially, we saw, I think the one of the key things is to note that they from the EU member states. There were very vastly different responses to the yep. to the streams of migrants that were flowing in, and I think you had some states like Germany that did open its borders and and made a made a vow to keep its borders open. Yep. Um, where I think they had, you know, upwards up some something like towards a million people coming in, uh, trying to seek asylum, where other states like Hungary, you know, closed its were very harsh against against migrants. Um, and so there's a very sort of different and dis disparate take from different member states, and I think one of the key issues was is that with these different takes, so with Germany opening its borders and others closing them. Um, and even, even in, within places like Germany, this issue being very, um, very controversial. The EU had to find a common response. Otherwise it might have divided its, it divided between itself and, and led to sort of cl- borders closing and things like that. And then just, just quickly before we get, uh, Yen on the line, um, the Paris attacks, I think also, also shifted some sentiment against, against refugees and migrants.
1: Okay. I think we now have Yen on the line. Yen, can you hear us? Yeah. Okay. There, perfect. Um. So, Jens, um, just uh, as we introduced you, um, we were just zooming in on the on the on the word from MSF that they would they they would be now rejecting funding from EU member states because of what what is sort of they're calling a or you're calling a shameful migrant policy. So, I'd love if you give us insight as to as to as to your view on the migrant policy and and what makes you think that it it is shameful and thus sort of the logic behind the the decision to reject the the funding of EU member
4: states. Thank you very much. uh, as you say, it's, it's, it's indeed very shameful. I think the, the consequences of this uh, act, the so-called or the famous EU-Turkey deal, is, is an, in practice and inherently an undermining of the right to seek uh, refugee status for uh, so migrants, refugees, who due to very violent conflicts in Syria, Afghanistan, uh, with this deal are now being uh, denied the opportunity to seek protection in the European Union. Um, and, and what this really does going forward is that it, it, it creates a precedent where uh, denying people the right to seek asylum, uh, when they are uh, fleeing conflict or seeking protection in other countries is inherently and practically being undermined. And that is shameful because, uh, of course, it's very, very concerning what that means for uh, people seeking protection in, in, in conflict and more so going forward.
2: Yeah. And can you just tell us a little bit more about this Turkey deal? Um, the EU, I think, sees it as a, as a solution to at least push the problem, which for them are migrants, uh, to its borders and try to retain, retain sort of the integrity within of, of, of its borders within the European Union and, and sort of allow Allow a common policy from from the EU, but clearly there are specific problems. What what what's some of the key um, violations that that this Turkey deal raises?
4: Well, what it does in practice is that it ensures that Turkey uh, closes its borders with Greece, and thus preventing uh, asylum seekers to reach uh, any of the EU countries um, by the virtue of of uh, providing. With uh, financial, substantial financial compensation, um, to basically erect a barrier for people to trying to reach uh, Europe via Turkey. Now, of course, the the challenge with that is that uh, it could create, of course, such a sort of a domino effect. Uh, Other countries are closing their borders closer to the conflict. Essentially, we end up, and we have seen examples of that in the Syrian conflict, of people being trapped in conflict with actually nowhere to go. Um, So that's one thing. Uh, Another thing which is very, very worrying is, of course, that humanitarian aid aid uh, for migrants uh, in general uh, is part of this deal, which means that basically uh, Turkey is being compensated through aid packages uh, to prevent migrants from from leaving Turkey, what that means is that aid humanitarian aid is no longer given necessarily to uh, to the ones that need it the most or or based on a impartial uh, principle it's basically given uh, to people uh, in order for them uh, to prevent them from
2: leaving turkey mm-hmm. but Jens, what's what do you think is the proper solution to this problem? There's, there's, um, f- from the member states and the EU, uh, side. There's citizens who, um, are very hostile towards migrants, um, and, and worry whether their states and the EU can actually provide for all these migrants coming in. Um, there's the EU worrying about this, this issue sort of splitting, um, different countries and, and perhaps different countries having to re-erect their borders. If the Turkey deal isn't the right solution, what should these states do, given given EU and these governments' um, complex challenges that they, that they face?
4: Indeed, it is very complex. I mean, we are faced with the largest uh, refugee and migration uh, migration crisis for many, many, many years, um, and, and solutions are complex. They will certainly not be simple. Because our concern as MSF is that that. The solution now with the deal, uh, preventing people from seeking protection and asylum in Europe, for example, um, has so so far-reaching and and so inhumane uh, consequences that this by no means can be the solution. Uh, However, we have seen that very, very little has been done, for example, to to tackle the causes uh, of of much of this migration, the conflict in Afghanistan, the conflict in Syria, for example. the, the push factors which are driving people away from their homes. I mean, let, let's be honest, uh, people are, are, are fleeing from, in some cases, either from incredibly violent conflict uh, or terrible conditions in other countries. It, it's not that people are simply seeking a better life. Um, but these push factors Certainly, have not been addressed in, in, in any sufficient manner. So, um, and so, 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 this Turkey deal is basically a, a, a way of trying to make up for that, compensate
2: for that. But but can the can European nations in the EU what more can they do? Do you think to um, solve these push factors? For example, if we look at the war in Syria, do you have suggestions as to as to how they should further try to solve that? Well, of course, uh, again, the,
4: the, the war in Syria is incredibly complex and and, and has produced many, many uh, refugees. Three million of them in Turkey, uh, which is three times the number, for example, that have reached Europe, uh, all of the EU countries. Um, What we are saying as an assessment and and the reason why we are stopping the uh, funding from EU uh, institutions and EU member states is is as a protest against this deal, they have, have chosen to Band aids the migration crisis upwards. Um, solving the, the the conflict in Syria, of course, it's not going to be very easy. Our stand is, however, that that more needs to be done, and this EU-Turkey deal, as it's called, is is by no means acceptable.
2: Now, I think I think it's ninety percent of MSF's finances that um come from private donors. I think that's that's been written. With, but still, I think it was fifty-six million euros came from the EU or member states. um Was it last year? Um, is, could, could this, uh, stance hamper some of, some of MSF's work, which, which I'd imagine in many cases is vital for, for saving lives?
4: Yes, and this is a very, very valid concern. Of course, uh, MSF, we have more than five and a half million uh, private donors across the globe, and that's by and large thanks to, uh, to these very generous donors that we uh, can take a stand at this, which is in line with our medical and humanitarian principles. Um, we have as an organization uh, in order to respond to emergencies, we always keep a, a, a minimal uh, reserve uh, in order to be able to respond to the unforeseen. So no existing uh, programs or projects or patients will go untreated uh, because of this uh, uh, Decision to, to no longer accept EU funds from our side. It is uh, the operational budget of MSF globally is more than 1.2 billion. Uh, so, as much as 56 million euros is a lot of money. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's a fraction of, of our overall uh, funds for, for treating patients and ensuring our program.
2: Now, um, has there been any indication yet that this bold stance might make a difference uh, for EU policy?
4: From the European Union side or the member states, no?
2: No, none, none yet. No, none
1: whatsoever. Okay, Jens, um, thanks for chatting to us, and, and we'll be sure to keep sort of following the situation. Thank you.
2: Thanks very much. Okay,
1: perfect. Thank you. If you're just tuning in, it's the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. Uh, just about halfway through the show and we're sort of focusing on on, on, on on refugees. Yesterday was World Refugee Day and and we have more than 60 million people who are displaced from their homes for various situations. So we're sort of just touching on different um, sort of different regions and trying to figure out what's going on and what's being done to fix it. So we were just chatting to, to, to Jens Pedersen, the humanitarian advisor of Doctors Without Borders, MSF, trying to see why they're rejecting funding from EU member states. Um, I mean, something we didn't get to ask him was, was the I'm quite curious about the situation between MSF and some of the sort of the world's sort of global power, so to speak. Um, during the uh, some of the uh, where there's sort of open warfare in some areas, we've had some of the hospitals bombed and that then there was some some tension between the White House in America and MSF saying this is this is not OK. And I think the slogan was even war has rules. And now this situation where between the EU member states and MSF, it's quite sort of interesting to see this continue to play out anyway that 's just speculation that 's not from the horse 's mouth, so 't don 't tweet that next we 're going to focus on 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 what is often sort of termed the largest refugee camp in the world, which is Dadaab in in Kenya northeastern region of Kenya. Um, and, and, and we really just want to zoom in there and say, you know, how, how did this come to be that there's so many displaced people in one place? What is the plight of these people? And of course, some of the politics surrounding it with the situation between Kenya and, and then Somalia and Kenya and Al-Shabaab and that fight and trying to see uh, how, how does this affect um, the lives of some of these very, very displaced and marginalized people staying in this area. Uh, talking about this, we'll have Bernard Rono, the education officer from RET International. Uh, Bernard, can you hear us? So the line is a bit unclear. So the line is a bit the line is a bit unclear. So we're just going to chat a bit about that. Um. So as we as we sort of sort that out, just a bit of sort of background on that. This is sort of in northeastern this is northeastern Kenyan Garissa County, which you we'll remember from the, uh, from the from the school the university at Garissa, which had this very very tragic attack. Um. And, and that's, that's, that's sort of the region we're talking about. Um where Kenya borders Somalia and, and, and where a lot of people have to be on the forefront of this situation between the Kenyan military and the African Union mission, AMISOM, and what's going on with Al-Shabaab. Um. so second try, uh, Bernard, can you hear us? Sorry, the hello? line. Uh, hello, Bernard, can you hear us?
0: Hi, I can hear you. Okay, fine. fine. Thank
1: you. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, so just giving some some context on Dada, what often makes headlines as being the the world's largest refugee camp or collection of camps, and I'd love for you to just give us a yes. context of what it's like on the ground. I mean, that's a that's hundreds of thousands of people. That's the size of a city. Um, so it's not. I feel like the word sort of refugee camp doesn't do it justice. Could you give us an idea of what what it's actually like there on the ground?
0: I didn't, um, do you actually, um, say that again. I didn't get, um, that question got
1: Okay. So just to Did repeat, write, I didn't no, right no, no problem at all. So I'm just saying that, that the, sort of the size of, and the scale of dub with hundreds of thousands of people there, that sounds a lot closer to a city yes. than a camp. So I feel like the word camp doesn't do it justice. If you could just give us sort of what it's like living there and being there on the ground every day.
0: Okay. Yes. Um, uh, um, the Dadaw camp. is, um, it's a complex, really. It's about five refugee camps: being um, being Dadaab um, refugee camp, E41 refugee camp, e 42 refugee camp, Hagadera um, refugee camp, and Kambios. All these uh, refugee camps, are, that I mean uh, roughly about 350,000 people mm. across. Uh, mostly for Somali refugees, and then we've got a few from the Democratic Republic of Congo. It, I mean we've got a few Burundians. We've got some of them from South Sudan. It's yes, they're all kind of cut across. But roughly about around fifty thousand people um, in these
1: five different camps. Absolutely. And your work is largely centered on education. Could you give us an idea of some of the sort of the needs that a lot of these refugees need by the time they're getting to these these what you say is a collection of five camps? What kind of needs do they need in terms of education, in terms of health care? What are the sort of the key concerns that that that, that are needed for these camps?
0: What kind of relief? Sorry, sorry kind the, of the kinds guidance? of
1: sorry, the lines a bit tough. Um, I was asking if you could just give us an idea of of the kind of of education needs that you're facing. Your work is centered on educating um, the, the the displaced people, refugees that arrive there. What are the education needs that you're finding are most needed?
0: Absolutely, yes, absolutely, yeah. Good question. Yes, um, I asked for an um, agency organization, um, headquarters in Geneva. It's called Rec International. Rec International started in the year two thousand. Um, it mainly focuses on education, but we also do lively um, capacity building, which is mainly for the youth. Uh, it is, um, we offer an education like no right? other, so, uh basically for children who are beyond the primary school. So really, when this come to the camp, we've got lots of uh, education needs, and um, those as well who are born here, they are looking at, of course, well, going to uh, basic education in the primary school, uh, secondary schools as well, um, and then on to tertiary level. Uh, so secu- um, all these education systems are anchored mostly, um, I mean, in the Canadian system of education, um, the primary school and the secondary school. Um, in the tertiary education, we've got a few agencies that offer uh, tuition uh, and scholarship to either Canadian colleges, American colleges. Uh, some students will do those courses here, either in diploma or degree level. But um, the need for education is as high as ever. Um, young people have realized that education is an important thing. Of course, I do believe it's an important thing for protection. Direct International looks at education, I mean, uh, as a whole, in a way to get the youth out of any other youth uh, of society. Um, we, we set them through school. I mean, we deal with youth who are dropped out of school um, initially, and they come up with a program um, that takes care of those who either some of them are working, some of them are mothers, but have missed out on an opportunity to go into secondary school and now get a chance to go to school now. Um, that really gets them, um, gets them away from I mean, marriages, sexual and gender-based violence, um, you know, radicalization issues. But this the world's taking care of our education. And education, I think refugees have realized that it is what will remain when anything else is gone. And we find that many parents, uh, many guardians are very keen that their children go to school. They are um, slightly older on the world are joining up. We have, um, you know, some agencies that are offering um, some sort of education for, um, for, for gentlemen, um, for some guys who are slightly older. So all these basically shows that people believe that uh, if you go to school, then you are protecting yourself, but also preparing yourself for the future.
1: And I hear you, and it's so incredible to hear people sort of still applying themselves in terms of education and trying to sort of improve their lives despite being so disadvantaged in their background. So my final question on this is is more I'm more on the politics side, and I know you're an educator, not a politician. But the Kenyan government has has, has has been heard to threaten that they would they would move to be closing down the camps and saying they're not getting enough support to keep them open. And saying that the camps are putting them at a disadvantage in terms of the of the fight against uh, Al Shabaab, what do you think? What do you think, and what what is your reaction? And and based on your work there, when you hear these threats and these comments about we we're just going to close this down, what do you what is your response to that?
0: I think um, really we, um, I think what I say is that of course we are preparing our our beneficiaries, our learners. We are preparing. Um, I mean, our beneficiaries who are in the livelihood, I mean, who are being trained in different skills. We are preparing our beneficiaries in social change with skills that, I mean, that are sustainable skills for them to either be, I mean, uh, if they are in the job or they are not in the job, they should be able to um, to survive. I mean, they should be able to get along. We are giving them certificates that will, I mean, that will um, increase their employability. We are giving them skills like tailoring. We are giving them skills um, in farming that will help them wherever they go. Uh, of course, the issue of closure is is beyond us. Is beyond myself. Um, we are just here to serve them. We are we are really keen to serve refugees wherever they may be, and um, we are just uh, following development as it were um, in the media, and um, as we are being informed as time goes on.
1: Perfect. Um, Thank you so much, and then please keep up the great work. Thank you,
0: too. Thank Thank you you very much as well. I appreciate it. Thank you.
1: If you're just tuning in, that was us speaking to Bernard Rono, our education officer that works with RET International, based in Dadaab Refugee Camp in uh in kenya northeastern kenya on the border of somalia um i mean you know you're hearing from that just a reluctance to really comment on what on what the government's up to and i suppose it makes sense for a lot of the people working there and saying hey it's out of our hands but i still think there's value in saying in in being on the ground and saying you know what i work with these people every day and i can speak for them and say listen these are not this is not sort of a terrorism breeding ground they're like good and innocent people here who are just you know trying to protect themselves and their families
2: Kingsley. i'm quite interested in your your viewpoints obviously being from kenya and having a lot of friends and family that you're in touch with is 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 what you're hearing is that closing this thing is a great idea um because i'd imagine you're from nairobi and and people are worried about terrorist attacks they're worried about radicalization um or kenyans fairly split over this issue
1: so i just to start on the sort of on the government side i i get the sense that it's it's more of a of a pawn in the government's game to get to get additional sort of international funding and i i I keep i think the threat to close that dub is is more of a threat than something the government actually intends on i know that wasn't your question but just quickly on the government side i i hear it much more as a threat of saying we will close this down and the aim is to get more support in the fight against al-shabab and get more support in holding refugees there um remember there's hundreds of thousands of people even Actually closing it, that is a, that is, that is, that's like closing down a city. So I I don't, I don't think, I don't feel a genuine intention from the government to close it down anytime in the near term. I think it's, I think it's a pawn in saying, hey, this fight against, and this is, this I somewhat agree with, this fight against Al-Shabaab is not only a Kenyan thing um america has a lot of a, a lot of influence in east africa and and has been a big part to play in this other western powers are part of this but suddenly when we talk about refugees and al-shabaab it becomes a kenyan problem and saying hey you've been a part of creating this you have stake in this you have skin in this game you can't say the al-shabaab issue and the refugee issue is a kenyan problem you have to come to the party and say hey we want we want sort of a decent uh haven for people who are, f- are fleeing from the conflict come to the party, let's do this together. Is it fair to use it as a threat? I suppose not, but it's it's politics.
2: Is that how the Kenyan public's viewing it, though, or, or are people um, more divided?
1: Um, I, I'd, I'd agree on the division. I mean, I, I get a sense that on one hand, there's a genuine sympathy of saying, why are, why are innocent people the, the ones suffering from this? And on the other hand, it's saying, listen, Somalis and Kenyan Somalis are killing us and they have to get out of the country. And it's sort of that split. Okay. Now to switch to something local. Um, when we often talk about refugees in South Africa, we often see it as a very distant, a very foreign thing, and we thought it was also just important to bring it home. And to talk about this, we'll be talking about. Um, we'll be talking to. Sorry, Amnesty International's executive director, Sinolimpilo Shangebutani. Sinolimpilo, can you hear us? This is not a great day for us on the phone. We'll just chat to our producer to fix that. So, Greg. Um, we, we, were, we were talking a bit about how we see refugees as such a foreign thing. But at the same time, we have this other word that we use a lot. We talk about xenophobia. We talk mm-hmm. about attacks on migrants locally. And, and and it often seems, and even recently with this issue in Tsoane, that's, that's happening. I was hearing reports of foreign shop owners being targeted. So it seems to be something that comes up. Whenever there's some kind of looting, some kind of violence, there's always word that, that foreigners are being targeted. And, 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 and it's clearly an issue in communities.
2: Well, it's undeniable that South Africa is a has a lot of pull factors. If we go back to yeah. one of the conversations we we're talking about earlier, a lot of pull factors for migrants um, who want to come here because of the economic o- opportunities, because of the, the sort of higher level of development, because of the you know the greater infrastructure. Um, and so you do get some of these sort of conflicts in 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 local areas that manifest themselves in violence when um, when communities have their issues. Okay,
1: uh, since <laughs> can you hear us? Hello. Okay, perfect. Sorry, we, we lost you there for a bit. So, Alipilo, we, we want to talk a bit about uh, Amnesty International's stance on, on the issue of refugees in South Africa, and especially the communication that says that authorities must do more to increase the protection of refugees and asylum seekers in the country. Um, I'd like to hear from you. What do you think is the role of the state of police and of and of South African authorities in protecting refugees and asylum seekers in the country? Okay, thank you
5: so much, Chair, uh, for the opportunity. No problem. <laughs> Yes, so as Amnesty International, really we are calling for increased protection for refugees and asylum seekers in in the country in particular. And when we are talking about this, we are saying, yes, we acknowledge and appreciate that the South African government, for instance, has adopted a local integration as um, a way of uh, accepting refugees into the country so we don't keep them in camps. Mm. At the same time, we are saying that at the moment we do have areas where the government, for instance, is lagging a bit behind. So, for instance, in terms of ensuring that they have access to services, all the services that refugees are supposed to be having access to. For instance, issues including access to education, uh, also uh, being able to seek employment in the country. One of the other main uh, worrying issues is around the safety and security of refugees in South Africa, especially with the xenophobic attacks xenophobic that are directed at them. In that regard, we're saying uh, government needs to be doing more in terms of strengthening some of the mechanisms in our communities and in the justice system to ensure that really refugees feel safe and protected in South Africa.
1: I'd love if you could just speak more on that. What, what do you think are some of the, these mechanisms that you mentioned? What are they? What are the ways, what are the ways government can actually do something about that? Because I think often the defense, or not the defense, but the explanation from government is saying, this is, these are, this is a symptom of a country that's, that's losing jobs. It's a symptom of a country that's already struggling with service provision. And they're saying that's what happens when we're already struggling to provide basic services and employment. And we have people from other countries coming in. Local communities are going to target those people the second they feel the pinch, whether it's load shedding, whether it's unemployment. So the government's almost saying it's not our fault. We're trying. And when you add more people, it gets worse. So what, what do you think? What do you think of that response from government? And then secondly, what do you think they actually can do to, to, to fight against what we see often when, when there's xenophobic attacks?
5: Okay, so thanks again. Oh, so, for instance, when we do acknowledge as Amnesty that the country is facing the challenge of the triple burden of unemployment, inequality, and poverty. And what we are saying is that government, you know, can invest more in terms of some of the social services to address some of those challenges and create employment opportunities. However, at the same time, we're saying that cannot be used as a scapegoat to say that we are not able to provide for our citizens and therefore we can't provide for refugees or Mm. people to be allowed to attack refugees because they are saying that they do not have jobs, they do not have access to food or any other opportunities. I think one of the things that needs to happen is really for people to understand what their rights are and how to claim them from the government and therefore not have... Uh, what I can call maybe displaced anger against refugees and migrants. In terms of our own constitution and also the Refugees Act, refugees also have the right, for instance, to access social services in this country. Part of the challenge and what government needs to be doing is, you know, when they do the planning, for instance, the IDPs, Integrated uh, Development Plans for Municipalities, they do not involve all the members of those communities. So this issue around saying that refugees are coming in and taking jobs or taking services that are supposed to be received by South Africans, that's where the first problem starts, for instance. When government is doing planning on local municipality planning, they need to involve every person who lives within those localities because in so doing they will then be able to cater for the exact numbers that are there that need the particular services when it comes to issues of xenophobia for instance one of the things that we are really calling for is um the a national led strategy for instance on addressing so firstly the protection of everyone within communities and part of this protection mechanism would include early warning systems for instance you know something almost similar to what used to happen where you had committees who knew, for instance, mm. if there's a, a pending attacks or, or something like that, then they'll be able to alert authorities at that very moment. Or what can happen, for instance, is also to create maybe like um, hotlines where people can report if there is a pending attack in the community. And one of the trends that we have noticed is around service delivery protests where, well, for instance, when uh, we have community members protesting uh, uh, around service delivery, failure of service delivery, they then attack refugees within their communities. So oftentimes, community members know when there is a plan to attack refugees. So what we are saying is that government should build then and capitalize on those mechanisms that are already in the communities to ensure that those are used constructively to feed into government response mechanism.
2: And we have this heard is... talk from the government side about early uh, early warning uh, mechanisms, but I'm not sure what's been going on with that. One question I just want to quickly get to before before we're going to have to let you go is yes. there's legislation on the table at the moment, the Refugees Amendment Bill, um, yes. which could, re- if, if passed, would reduce the time afforded to asylum seekers to approach their nearest refugee reception office once they come in South Africa from 10 down to 5 days. What sort of effect will this have on have on refugees trying to seek asylum in the country?
5: Okay, thank you. So, firstly, one of the challenges is that uh, currently some of the refugee reception offices, the number of refugee reception offices in the country has been reduced. Therefore, new, newly arriving asylum seekers have less options now of uh, offices to go to to apply for asylum. So, actually, in... Reducing the number now of days for people to be able to reach the nearest refugee reception office, we are opening them up, for instance, to being arrested or other rights violations because it will take them longer to reach the nearest refugee reception office. So, for instance, they say someone who did not come through the Musina border where there is a refugee next to the, next to the border, but who came through other points of entry and they, are, they say where, where have they closed an office in Cape Town, for instance. Those people are expected today to date, go to Johannesburg where there is an office to apply for asylum. So where do they get them means? because they do need to legalize their stay in the country? So that opens them up to a lot of rights violations. But also access to services as we are just talking about it now in terms of communities in um in in, 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 in border areas, how are those going to be resourced to ensure that for some of the people, for instance, who may not be able to travel quickly are able to be provided by for in terms of the services that they need. But one other thing that I wanted to address quickly around the issue of protection that we are talking about mm. is around strengthening the justice system. Because one of the things that keeps coming up around the attacks is that uh, communities sometimes require refugees to negotiate in order for them to be returned back to the communities. They ask them to drop the cases. So we are saying that needs to be strengthened because we cannot dro- violate... someone's right and expect that you will negotiate and say if you drop a case, therefore you can come back to the community. That should
1: never be allowed. thank you so much. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have, and I'm sure we'll make time to go much deeper on this in the future. Thank you.
5: Okay, thank you so much.
1: Okay, perfect. Um, Something that we didn't really touch on on that is just about immigration policy, And, and I remember during Operation Fiela Reclaim in the city, there was a lot of... A lot of reporting and Greg, you reported on this, this idea of, of illegal and forced deportations and a lot of things that were happening sort of under the radar by the police and the army. And, and that's, 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 I don't think a conversation that's being had when we talk about, when we talk about the rights of sort of asylum seekers in the country.
2: I know for, for, I think, I'm not sure about asylum seekers, but mm. different migrants, particularly from sort of neighboring countries, yeah. many of them say they have issues with, with the police in terms of, you know, having their passport demanded on the spot. And, mean, no, yes, and if, yeah. if, if they don't have their passport there, they might be arrested and not afforded the chance to, to produce their documents. And I think there's, there's a number of issues dealing with sort of the authorities that, that different migrants face and that I'm not sure if the authorities are willing um, to, to try to work out.
1: Absolutely. I mean, my view is, has always been that a government's looking at its sort of em- employment plan and unemployment's, I mean, unemployment's increasing, you know, there's no job service delivery struggling and they look at foreigners and they're like, we just don't have space, we don't have room. So you use any, any mechanism you can, whether that's the immigration policy, whether that's the police, whether that's the army and, and, and it, it appears to me that there's a sort of very well thought out and systematic plan. To, to To make it very difficult for people coming to South Africa mm. either to seek asylum or otherwise to either keep them out and if they here make it very difficult for them while they' here
2: I think in in the government's defense for a second, I think that they would strenuously deny any sort of Absolutely. plot against this, but at the same time, note that they they do have quite humane uh, refugee laws compared to compared to many other countries out there, um, but it does seem that there is definitely an effort to make um the system of of migration much more official and formal rather than informal and um un ungovernable.
1: We have to go again and kicked out of the studio. We love you very much and we'll see you next week.
4: The Daily Maverick Show on com.